Tell me a little bit more about the thinking that went into you starting your own business. Yeah, so what happened with City Year, I left City Year because they, they laid us all off, right? Oh. So we had to, but it was intentional. It was intentional because it, it was for the betterment of the organization to upskill recruiters across the country to be diversity recruiters, right? Okay. So to be able to have that knowledge and skill, right? Mm-hmm. And so they kind of phased out my team. This is Claim of Stories, a show about professionals working in the sportswear industry and the incredible careers they've been able to claim. Welcome to the Creative State. I'm Bima, and on today's show, recorded live at the 2019 African American Footwear Forum in Portland, Oregon, how Darla went from growing up in the projects to being a champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, partnering with global sportswear brands. While working at Simmons University in 2006, Darla discovered an opportunity to bring more diversity to the student population of the MBA program by recruiting more women of color. She worked at City Year leading their diversity recruitment and strategic partnerships and supported Reebok with the diverse talent acquisition. Darla talked about her very tough environment, growing up around drugs and gangs in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and gave us some insight into what it was like being raised by a single mother. She said it was extremely tough, and she grew up without having many positive examples of success. Going to college wasn't really something she was thinking about. When Darla joined me on stage at the forum, she shared how her dad inspired her to seek higher education. She was real, right? Yeah. And I'm just gonna start right yeah. there. Let's go to it. Um, <laughs> um, no, seriously though, um, you know, growing up in Cambridge, you know, being raised by a single parent, um, growing up in the projects and everything that's associated with that, right? Probably not like, unlike many people in this room, but, you know, drug infested gangs, um, you know, relying on public assistance just to survive. And, um, you know, but I, but I had a mom, you know, that was really instrumental in saying, you know what, even in the absence of having formal education, she did say, you know, you do need to focus on education. She only had a GED, mm-hmm. um, but you know, in in that she instilled in me: come home, do your homework, yeah. you know, go to school. And it was through that that it made me realize, you know, you got to keep pushing. You know, mm-hmm. being a first generation, you know, college graduate, right. it was critical because when I say first generation, I truly mean that. Grandparents didn't go to college. Parents didn't go to college. Aunts, uncles, truly first generation. And it wasn't until my dad said to me, like, after high school, like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, (laughs) high school advisors weren't talking to me about college. I didn't know anyone that went to college. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you're Native American, Mm -hmm. so you need to leverage some of those benefits, right? And I said, okay. So that's it. Like, go, go use that. And so, you know, I ended up starting my educational journey at community college because I knew it was going to be paid for. And then all the stigma and shit that's affiliated with community college. But it was important for me to like go to school and not have any debt, right? Or I couldn't afford it, right? Um, So I started my journey, you know, working full time after high school, but taking classes at night. And it took me nine years to finish my bachelor's degree. How do you stay focused over nine years, right? I mean, because you got to think you're dealing with society norms and people are telling you these people are graduating in however many years. How do you stay focused knowing that yeah, I still want this dream too. And I still got to pay bills. I still got to do all these other things. How do you do that? Exactly. You know, my first job 
was, and I wasn't qualified on paper. My first job was working for a university mm. and recruiting master's degree candidates. So you can imagine, you know, out there traveling the country, yeah. trying to recruit graduate level students when you only had a high school diploma, right? right? So I knew somebody that knew somebody that got me this job, right? Yeah. So relationships are everything, <laughs> relationships. right? Everything. <laughs> and um, so I was out there recruiting and people kept saying, did you go to this university? Did you go there? And I'm like, nah. nah. <laughs> but in the back of my mind, it was like, you need to actually get a master's degree, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what pushed me on the path to continue my educational journey. And, and I was applying for a number of opportunities, mm -hmm. and they're like, but you don't have your bachelor's. But I got nine years right. of experience, yeah. you know? They're like, no, you don't have your bachelor's. You need that. Mm -hmm. And so that pushed me. That pushed you. That pushed me. And so in, it was in 2006, you were at Simmons University? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at Simmons is when you started to do some work in intentionally creating some pipelines for people of color. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more behind that story. Yeah, so you know, throughout my career, you know, I was again taking classes at night and even in grad school. So I started, you know, I applied for a master's program at Simmons, was taking classes there, mm -hmm. and then a job opportunity presented itself. Okay. Right? For me to recruit graduate students to the program. I'm like, I could recruit more people. Yeah. And so, you know, I started and I'm looking around, and at this time it was an all-white predominantly white women's MBA program. Mm. And you know, I had recruited this woman of color one day uh, to start the program and she said, hey, Darla, you need to recruit more women of color to this program. And I was like, shit, you're right, you're right. I do. And um, so I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me develop a, a strategy that would enable me to do that, right? And you know, leadership wasn't saying you need to do that, but as a woman of color, I felt the responsibility to do that. And so I started with, just being the face of the university, going out, attending college fairs, being that face so that I could actually resonate. It could resonate. Was this coming out the out of the, the budgets from the university? So what was budget? Taken care of. There was no budget. Yeah, there's there's no budget for diversity, right? You have to make the case. And even in your you know respective organization, there's no money. You have to ask for it and you have to build a case for it. Mm -hmm. um, but there was still no money. So mm -hmm. everything was like building a building relationships. So you know, building relationships with organizations like National Black MBA okay. or Prispanica or, you know, Ramba for LGBTQ MBA. It was about building those relationships, reciprocal relationships that weren't based on budget or money. No. It was like cross promotion. So really building those relationships yeah. over time. And so this is just you. Just me. Working on these efforts. Working on these efforts. What do you, as you got towards the end uh, before you made a transition, what did you start to see as the impact of that work that you were doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, other than the, the strategic relationships that I was building, it was about how do you leverage the existing people of color, women of color in this program? Mm -hmm. How do you bring them into the conversation so that they're also being ambassadors for you, right? And so, you know, they, they were instrumental in like hosting information sessions right. or call campaigns and yeah. really, you know, supporting prospective candidates. So they were essential in, in getting that done. Um, but you know, in the absence of any sort of budget, I mean, you just got to build relationships. You got to be be authentic, mm -hmm. and you have to be intentional about what it is that you're doing. Right, because it's uh, at the end of the day, that also comes back on on you. You're the face of that, and you want to make sure that all of that is representative of your character and exactly. what you're bringing to the table. Exactly. And so, as you continue in this work, uh, you end up going to City Year, mm -hmm. and you go into City Year, and I believe one of the projects we talked about that you were working on was My Brother's Keeper. Yeah. What's my brother's keeper? Yeah. 
So first, let me just say what City Year is. So yes, in case yeah, you don't yeah. know what City, <laughs> year, is, City, year. City year is a national education nonprofit. Okay. And what they do is they recruit AmeriCorps members, about 3,000 young people every year, to serve in inner city schools and get kids back on track to graduate, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem over time was it was attracting a lot of white women. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't representative of the communities that they serve. So mm -hmm. they recruited me to come in, mm -hmm. develop a national strategy. So there's 26 sites across the country, but headquartered in Boston. And develop the strategy where they could bring in more people of color, okay. right? And so they said, hey, Darla, do this work. We need you to bring in more people of color. Um, but I also want you to specifically target men of color. Okay. And so I said, okay. So I, I started a tour of yeah. the country, <laughs> meeting with you know, potential partners. Why wouldn't you send people to us? Like trying to get a better understanding. Mm -hmm. And you know, got some feedback from that. Hosted some focus groups um, with candidates that were already in the program. Like why wouldn't you stay? Or what were some of the issues and challenges? Mm -hmm. And through those focus groups and through those learnings, I'm like, wait, let me take a step back. And I developed a strategy, this My Brother's Keeper Fellowship, which was developing these strategic partnerships okay. to bring in that more diverse pipeline. Mm -hmm. So organizations like Thurgood Marshall, okay. United Negro College Fund, Round Brown, Posse Foundation. So all of these you know, organizations that have this diverse constituency base and develop these partnerships. And so mm. they started sending us people. Mm. And when they were there, it was like, okay, we got them, right? So it's easy <laughs> to start developing partnerships and bringing in diverse talent, but what do you do when, when they're there? Right. Like, and that's, that's where this program came in. It was about development, you know, mentoring, coaching, um, and really supporting them as men of color and what that means. And the development was different. It was different. And so, it, you know, again, intentionality approach. is yeah. everything. Yeah. So when, I, I guess when, you, when you're talking about what are you doing to get there and comfort and development? What are some of the things you remember about some of the things you put in place to make sure that was happening? Exactly. So, you know, making sure that they had a mentor outside of the organization that was a person of color, mm -hmm. right? And they also had coaches. They didn't need to be people of color, but in leadership positions, right? right? And so making sure that they had those connections, mm -hmm. but also curriculum that was specifically focused on men, mm -hmm. men of color, your presence, your brand, how to interpret, you know, performance, yeah. you know, and feedback and, and really mm -hmm. helping them to further their career. What's next after right. city year, right? right? And so really developing that pathway yeah. to career. And, and so it sounds like a lot of that was also in navigating the space too, because a lot of times when we get into these spaces, um, we are surrounded by a lot of people that come from uh, white backgrounds. We, very few of us yes. are there. And there's a different way that we have to interact in those environments. Was that some of that work that was helping these young men when you get into this space, there are different things that yeah, you Yeah, but anticipate. it was dual purpose, because I was going in on the white people too, right? Okay. So it's not just about us and adjusting to what's there. Like, yeah. you also need to understand where these people were coming from. So mm -hmm. it really went both ways. Okay. When we come back in just a minute, how Darla went from being laid off at City Year to starting her own business and taking on Reebok as a client. Stay with us. I'm Bima, and you're listening to Claim of Stories. Hey everyone, support for Claimant Stories comes from Portland State University's Center for Retail Leadership. If you want to prepare for a successful career, they can help by creating hands-on learning experiences focused on innovation, collaboration, and thought leadership. Visit pdx.edu backslash retail leadership. Hey, welcome back to Claimant Stories. So it's 2017, Darla is no longer working at City Year and decides to start her own business as a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist. 
So what happens with City Year, I left City Year because they, they laid us all off, right? Oh. So we had to, but it was intentional. It was intentional because it, it was for the betterment of the organization to upskill recruiters across the country to be diversity recruiters, right? Okay. So to be able to have that knowledge and skill, right? And so they kind of phased out my team. And, um, the, and in doing that, we had to ensure that, um, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, what was the question? No, yeah, so I was asking what was the what was the inspiration and maybe the motivation for you to start your so, own business? So yeah, so in, leave, in, the, in that layoff, in that layoff, it was important for me to, you know, say, okay, what am I gonna do now, right? I got a nice little package, like what am I gonna do now? <laughs> and people started calling me, right? Yeah. Again, I, I heard one of the speakers say earlier, like make sure you're, you're building that brand and that your reputation brand, right. for yourself. And I had started doing that. Right. And people were calling me like, hey, can you consult on this? Can you help us bring in more people of color? Can you help us with this business group and launching this? And so people started calling me. I had no website, no marketing, no nothing. Wow. And so your brand is everything. Your reputation is everything. So they so were I hearing about the work you were doing. Absolutely, yeah. And so that's, that's what kind of brought in the clients. Yeah. You know, and so it was, it's been great. It's been great. Yeah, it's been awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess in your observation, you've been working with a lot of different companies. Um, what would you say are some of the things we need to focus on if we're really going to make some progress in diversifying the footwear industry and other industries? Yeah, the foot footwear industry is fucked, you know, pretty much. <laughs> like, we, we really do need to be intentional, mm -hmm. right? And you, if leadership doesn't understand the value of diversity after 20 years of research, whether it's, don't believe me, but if you read any kind of McKinsey study or yeah. Harvard Business Review, the research is there, right? So in order to really move the needle, you have to break the fucking needle, right? Yeah. You need to understand that diversity is not only a good thing to do, but it's actually essential and impacts the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So when you can make the case and when leaders understand the case for diversity, mm -hmm. they'll start to put some goals and metrics behind it. Mm -hmm. It won't be fluff. It, it won't be, I'm just gonna hire this head of diversity. You know, there will be resources, time committed, KPIs right. that are affiliated with it. Right. You know, so it's not just a check the box. And you can quickly understand if it's a check the box initiative. Mm -hmm. And so the, the more that you can kind of challenge leadership, challenge yourselves and mm -hmm. hold yourselves and your colleagues and leadership accountable right. for DNI, the the more the better off you'll be. The better off you'll be. And so you were talking a little bit about that business case. What would you how would you define that business case in, in your terms if you know you're going to talk to a client, you're like, this is the reason why you know this needs to happen. And I know that might seem uh, obvious. But what would you say? I mean, look at all the shit that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. with, with the fashion industry and all these faux pas and, you know, nightmares, PR mm -hmm. nightmares, right? Mm -hmm. You can avoid all of that. You know, you really need to be proactive, you know, like with, like with Gucci, hiring a director of diversity after your black sweater, mm -hmm. like that shit should have already been done before. And it right. should be a global head of, chief of, not a, not mm. a director. So being proactive, making sure that you have the right leadership and structure in place. Mm -hmm. It's not under HR, it's reporting into your brand president or your, your CEO. Right. You know, it's, it's that important. So having that level of intentionality mm -hmm. is critical. And I, I really want to touch on what you just said because you said it needs to be at the top as a peer with those senior leaders, not someone trying to come up and influence, but it has to be respected on that same level. Right. Is that because if not, you don't feel like it will actually be influential? It's not important. If your leadership is not talking about it every opportunity, every town hall meeting, every meeting, it's not important. If this role does not report into a brand president or a COO or somebody that understands like the budgets, the revenue, if, if, if it's not reporting at that level, mm -hmm. it's not important. <laughs> It's not important. I mean, hands down. Like right. any industry expert will tell you that if it's under HR or under here, it's not important. Not important. It's not important. 
Wow. <laughs> well, Darla, you know, I, I, yes, please. I think a lot of us, obviously, in this audience deeply care about this topic because we are from the African-American community, and I definitely want to see a time where there are a lot of us in leadership, not because it's the right thing to do, just because that is how society should progress. Um, and I just want to also share with you that we're appreciative of people like you that are doing this work to help lead that charge. Like, it's very important to have people that are dedicated to the cause. Thank you. Um, with that said, in your work and your career, uh, we're going to have people in this audience as well that want to pursue some of the similar things. Um, dealing with a topic like we're dealing with, what advice might you have for the audience when they're navigating these conversations with leadership? Yeah. I mean, I, I worked at Reebok, and I, I left the brand. And always be in a position where you can tell a brand, fuck you, and move on, right? And it's, it's not necessarily what I did for Reebok, because... You know, with Reebok, you know, spending the last year there, I quit, they brought me in to develop a diversity recruitment strategy. And very quickly, I learned, I looked around the room, there were all white people that were interviewing me. When I got to the brand, it was a lot of white people. And I was very intentional about sitting in the cafeteria, because they had a, a policy where you could sit wherever. And I said, <laughs> well, you're going to bring me in and bring more diverse talent. I want to see the diverse talent. So I'm <laughs> going to sit my ass in the cafeteria. And I did that for six months. And I started to really build authentic relationships with people of color to understand their experience. Because for me, as a person who's been in 20 years in talent acquisition, yeah. it's not about bringing in diverse talent. It's about keeping them once you get them, right? And developing them and promoting them. So Ooh. I needed to understand from a cultural perspective, what, what's your experience like working at the brand? And the more I learned about the experience, I'm like, this is not a pipeline issue. This is not a pipeline issue. It's about what do you do when you have the talent? And so, you know, those surveys companies send out every year, like, oh, the culture here is great, right? And, you know, it wasn't the feedback that I was hearing, right? And so I went to leadership and said, hey, you just sent out information about a survey that, you know, people, you know, people are happy here and it's great. I have a different narrative. Mm -hmm. Would you be open to having a conversation? Mm -hmm. And they were, and that was awesome. And from that experience and learning about the challenges that other people were facing at the brand, I was able to launch their first people of color group, wow. which is crazy, their business group, where you think a brand yeah. not having that sort of affinity group when you rely so heavily on the black and brown dollar, right? right? And so we're able to build that. Um, and I think, you know, for you people in the audience, you know, if you're involved in those affinity groups, business groups, whatever you call them, make sure you're holding yourselves accountable, right? And you're holding leadership accountable, right? You're hiring managers. If you're in a position to hire someone, you tell your recruiter, I wanna see a diverse slate. Don't bring me a bunch of white people. Like you need to ensure you're holding those people accountable, right? And with these resource groups, you need to make sure they have charters. Very simple best practice. If you're involved in an affinity group, business resource group, and there are no KPIs or goals around talent acquisition, right. talent retention, and promotion, then it's, it's a cultural group where you're celebrating and potlucking. Like, it's not a real business resource group. And if you don't have, you know, executive sponsorship, and I don't mean just a manager, I mean at the most senior level, if you don't have somebody to talk to mm -hmm. about some of the challenges and raise some of those issues, it's, so, not, it's, not, it's not a best practice. It's not a best practice yeah. because so, it's not happening. Yeah, leverage, leverage your privilege in those groups and, and, and hold leadership accountable. You know, at all, all levels. All levels. Darla is the founder of the DeGrasse Group. Her company was established in 2017. 
Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Find out more about Darla and get access to all of our episodes on our website at claimastories.com. And while you're there, please give us a review. If you'd like to connect, follow us on Instagram at claimastories. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo and Adrian Anaya with music composed by VDOT of The Creative State. Thanks also to Oilong Maui and Kate Williams. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claima Stories.